Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, uh, which now feels like it was back in the Ice Age. Yeah, I think I was a woolly mammoth when we began, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we're discussing Unorthodox, the Netflix miniseries released in March 2020, and the first uh, major international TV hit filmed largely in Yiddish. It's based on the best-selling 2012 memoir by Deborah Feldman called Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots. It sees the heroine, uh, the, t- the, the Netflix show, sees the heroine escape from the repressive Satmar Hasidic community in Williamsburg, New York, bound for Berlin, secretly pregnant to embark on a new life. There are uh, lots of differences with Feldman's story. Feldman gave birth in New York, lived there for years with her husband while slowly building up to total exit from the community, uh, in part through a course in literature at Sarah Lawrence College. She eventually moved with her son to Berlin in 2014, but the core theme is the same, a young woman's process of escape from the shackles of a Hasidic community and, as the program very clearly wants to present it, from dark to light. This is a series that has received glowing reviews, as ever. The Guardian called it a thrilling story of freedom and rebellion from New York to Berlin. Um, Los Angeles Times, also extremely enthusiastic, and describes the series as being propelled by a riveting performance from Israeli actress Shira Huss. And I would say that one of the great appeals of this series is the quite sensational uh, lead actress who is childlike. I mean, she looks this very sort of vulnerable, small, childlike actress that has got a huge kind of presence on the screen. Um, And in the Jewish Chronicle in Britain, described it as utterly binge-worthy viewing while in isolation. And I think many people during the time of shutdown and lockdown have availed themselves of unorthodox. I saw in one place it was the most watched program in Spain in the month of March, as one sort of weird fact has it. Um, So clearly lots of people have been watching this recently. Um, It seemed to me, and I don't watch much Israeli TV, that it fits a bigger trend going on at the moment in American drama to be telling stories about Orthodox and also more broadly Jewish families. Does that seem right to you, Zoe? Um, Well, it's not just American uh, drama, but what I would say just briefly on that point about Spain is that that shows that a country with not a particularly huge Jewish community now is obsessed with the story of of an ultra-Orthodox girl escaping from her Jewish community for Berlin. I think there's a universal appeal going on, um, and I think this perhaps isn't without its sinister sinister aspects that we can we can return to that so no i think it there's been a a worldwide resurgence in interest by filmmakers and and tv makers um in in aspects of jewish life um i've been indulging in lots of israeli um tv um and actually cinema over the years but tv more recently for instance shtizel which has become five years or so after it was made uh, a kind of cult hit it's it's about a, a 
Haredi ultra-Orthodox community in Jerusalem, in the Geula area, which actually isn't the most uh, ultra-Orthodox Meir Sharim part, but it, it's an adjacent district. And then, of course, Fauda, uh, which takes the Israeli-Palestinian conflict head-on in an incredible way, which has, again, resulted in a strange popularity in countries you might not expect. Fauda was in the top 10 most streamed, most watched um, TV in Lebanon, for instance, uh, this, this last time it was released. Um, Transparent, though, yes, Transparent is an American um, hit, again, about a Jewish, a reformed Jewish family in, in California, who one of whose members transitions to, towards becoming a woman. Um, but that was very much Judaism and uh, trans issues front and center. That was a, a global phenomenon. And then even the, the recent documentary, one of us, which we might return to, about um, three or four New York um, members of the Hasidic community in New York leaving their community. And finally, programs like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon, which I devoured. Again, very much about Jewish life, Jewish families, not religious either. So, so you can see it really does, there is an interest here in Jews. Something is going on. And it's not just religious Jews. Um, it's, it's, it's Jews in history, Orthodox Jews in the present, and coming out of Israel, themes that relate to, to religion um, and Israeli identity, but, but that obviously hasn't been tackled outside of Israel. And a new fascination for Yiddish as well. I mean, you mentioned at the start, Zoe, this has been the big breakout hit in Yiddish. Um, and I think if you look in New York at the moment in particular, there's been a very vibrant revival of Yiddish opera, Yiddish drama. There's the New York um, Yiddish Repertory Theatre. And I think in terms of making unorthodox, they were able to tap a lot of those resources. I think one of the people who coached the actors um, was called Eli Rosen, who's an important Yiddish actor in New York. And it's something almost ethnographic about the desire to get the details right. I think the Satmar community speak a sort of Hungarian patois version of Yiddish. And as a result, they employed these actors, um, these sort of specialists in Yiddish in New York to help coach them in exactly the right kind of dialect. Um, so there's something almost ethnographic about the way it's recreated this Williamsburg community. And I think it speaks to a bigger kind of revival of Yiddish as a kind of language of drama, as a language of expression um, that's happening both on religious grounds amongst communities, but also as a sort of secular uh, literature too. The drama, as you alluded to earlier, Zoe, is split between uh, Brooklyn and Williamsburg in particular, and then looking ahead to the life that Etsy embraces in, or sorry, the Esti embraces as she settles in Berlin. Um, Zoe, as someone who's lived in Berlin, uh, how did you feel it captured uh, the German capital? And um, what did you make of its representation of the city? I mean, I wanted to hate it, and I kind of did hate it, um, because obviously it presents Berlin as this utopia. Um, I think one of the weird things about Berlin is that it is obviously the criminal capital of the world, perhaps only behind Pyongyang, but actually perhaps not even behind that in history. <laughs> I mean, as the center of the Nazi regime, as the center of the Eastern, the, the East German regime, I mean, Berlin is anything but a kind of a place without ghastly, ghastly ghosts etched into every single building. So that's partly what I found fascinating about it was living there, you kind of, you could, you could look at former Nazi buildings uh, one moment and for and sort of Stasi uh, redoubts the next moment. It was sort of completely. There's no patch of ground in all of Berlin that you that is free of 
skeletons, literal skeletons, bones, murder, you know, whether it's Rosa Luxemburg being murdered in the Tiergarten and thrown into the canal. Um, it, it's a grim, gruesome and criminal city historically. But obviously after, um, well, in two stages, after, the, after World War II and then after the, the fall of the Eastern Bloc, Berlin has morphed into something absolutely other, a kind of, it is almost like a, a type of paradise. Now, when I lived there, I found this strange because it was, it was lovely. It was very easy to live in but it was a bit boring. I mean, the culture is second to none, but the people, there was something emptied out about Berlin. I mean, you could tell that the, what made Berlin interesting and, and, and amazing had also been the thing that had been killed alongside uh, everything else that, ha that happened. So, so, so I, I, think it was, I think the weird thing about Berlin is that it does have this harrowing history, but then it also has this quite asinine, kind of like banal flavor to it now. And I don't, as I say, I don't mean the culture. I just, I'm going to be really horrible here. I kind of mean the people. I mean, I, I think like, this, so what happens is that Esty leaves um, her kind of grim uh, community and then in, in New York and lands in Berlin and almost immediately starts making friends with these like lovely, handsome, eclectic, friendly uh, professional musicians in their, early, in their kind of mid-20s. And it's just, I did like, I mean, there probably are Berliners and ger young Germans like that. Um, but it's it, they do. There is a kind of lack of that edge, which I think you see in other um, major cities, and certainly it, it would have just been. You can understand why it was such a sea change for someone like um, someone like Esty. Uh, so yeah, Doris, I think that then leads us, Tom, to to the kind of slightly more scholarly point, perhaps, about the differences in the way um, hol the Holocaust essentially is is remembered, since the Holocaust is the driving force of identity in, in the community, in the Satmar community, Esti has left. And indeed, for her, it's one of the pillars of her existence as far and, and ways of thinking about who she is and, and what Jews are. And then when she comes into ca contact with not only physical Berlin um, and this sort of, for, you know, the, all the landmarks that, that were kind of integral to Nazi history, but also to an Israeli girl. There's an Israeli girl in it that she meets. Yeah, the IL and, and the two of them, it's an interesting moment because you get the Israeli perspective on the Holocaust, which is that she has to, lots of, you know, Israelis, Israel is founded on, on, on families who, who lost most of their members in the Holocaust. And, it, and as she says, you have to keep going. Um, Esty, however, thinks the world should stop at all times because of this, this hideous uh, past. And there's this sort of, I think, excruciating, you're beginning to get that I, <laughs> I, got, I got quite critical of this, uh, of this hit when it, when it moved to Berlin. But they, they go with this, like, this hot guy that takes her and, and with the IL and, and the buddies from the music conservatory to, to Wannsee to swim in the lake, which is also the site um, where the villa, where the final solution was decided and and it's it's pointed out to Esty that oh that's the villa and then she says you swim in this lake um and it's just sort of like yes of course they swim in this lake it's not it's not like for everyone else it's not uh, it, people people as Yael say says move on um and so I don't know Tom you you probably have a more sensitive point to make out of that difference in the way the two different cultures or or, or even you could add a third culture Germany is remembering this hideous German past I think it seems that the Satmar community, at least in this version of events, are people who, as you say, are imprisoned by those events, who are completely trapped in the past. Um, and you feel that both in sort of Esty's inability to kind of look beyond the Holocaust history of Berlin, you know, her reticence to do that, um, but also in the way that the Holocaust is actually used in the community to put pressure on her as a mother. I mean, it's very clear, both in the wedding 
but also in the constant talk about her fertility and her reproduction, that for this Orthodox community, repeopling uh, the world with uh, Orthodox Jews, you know, making up for the six million, um, is this incredible burden that's being placed on these young women. Um, so I think it's, it draws an interesting comparison between Esty, who feels that, you know, in the community she was in, the Holocaust defines kind of gender relations, um, and it also defines her historical horizon. Then coming to Europe and realizing by talking to Israelis, by talking to people from elsewhere in the world, that she has to kind of, you know, tentatively move on. Um, the great image of liberation is when, as you say, she walks out into the lake at Vansay and she removes her wig. She takes off her shaital, and it's almost symbolically a liberation from all of that weight, from that kind of past that she's been carrying around with her. Zoe, do you want to say something about the violence that's almost aimed at women in unorthodox? Um, that I read at one point, Deborah Feldman said that she didn't escape from a patriarchal culture, she actually ran away from a matriarchal culture. And in mm. unorthodox, we see women really in the job of being kind of, uh, of surveillance of other women, um, of gossiping about other women, of coercing other women. Um, it's a pretty brutal depiction um, of women in the Satmar community. Yeah, I mean, one of the most handy ideas that I acquired when I did my MPhil in gender studies was that of complicity, gender complicity. So that was used in relation to masculinity, um, uh, which is how the hegemon is sustained. So how does the dominant gender culture sustain? And it's not just through um, those who are enforcing it, it's through everyone else. It's not just through the alpha exemplars or those in power, it's through mass complicity. So that's another aspect you could say of patriarchy is that women are also propping it up. Um, there's a complicity, uh, enough complicity across the board for the system to continue. So, you know, the question with them is, you know, what, what have they got to lose? And I suppose um, the women are, by the time they get to the age that they are uh, wives, um, they are completely complicit. They, they have everything to lose if the system, they, they have no means for dealing with, with change to that system because, um, as we hear from in this, in this case, they, um, and certainly in One of Us, the, docu the other Netflix documentary I was talking about, really hammers home the point that women are, you know, the men aren't either, but the women are not educated. They don't have any of the tools uh, for for functioning outside of this community, but also they would never have been encouraged to critique, to develop any kind of critical analysis. So the the, the safest thing to do, I presume, is just to sort of make sure that you police um, police the the herd um, and anyone who seems to be kind of actually being critical is therefore threatening your only possible way of life, and you therefore have to come down on them like a ton of bricks. I mean, I've been in some ultra-Orthodox situations before where, yeah, I mean, the women are lovely, but they're, they're not equipped for the kinds of conversation that I would want. You know, the, the, the chat very much is about uh, kids and cooking, and there's a sort of idea that everybody's pretty upbeat about that because it's God's word. So in a way, if you start criticizing any of that or posing a threat, you are going against um, God's, God's way. Um, but I, I think that it's interesting that yeah the, the you know you you drew attention to the to the trappings of of her womanhood and her fertility just go back to that shaitel in the in the lake tom i mean i'm sorry but you know in just in the interest of holding this production to account you seem to be buying that that's a kind of powerful symbol i mean how heavy-handed can it be though did you not i mean i i'm just getting annoyed thinking about it did you not think that oh the shaitel comes off in the nazi lake um is a kind of excessively heavy-handed show of, of of sort of womanly um 
sort of rebirth, but also kind of a very blunt historical point? Or did, did that kind of symbolism actually work for you? I felt the show was obliged to try and come up with some contemporary secular symbols that could compete with the intensely heavy ritualized symbolic nature of Jewish Orthodox life that you saw in New York. Mm. So it felt like half the show is about people who are bound together by ritual. And then they had to try and find some way of giving the sequences in Berlin something more than just a kind of, you know, a drama, which essentially it is a sort of chase narrative, mm. um, but to try and give it some sort of equal symbolic weight. And so it chooses this image of the shaitl, you know, which makes you think again of kind of women removing the veil in other traditions as a kind of liberation moment. And then at the end, it gives us the image of her singing. Um, you know, she does the musical performance uh, the, in the final episode. And first of all, she sings Schubert's Andi Musik, which, you know, her voice is not good enough to sing, but it's a homage to her grandmother and it talks about her love of music. And then she sings um, a song known as the Nigun, which is from a Hasidic wedding ceremony. It's the music that we've heard when we have the flashback of her wedding uh, two episodes before, but now she's reclaiming it as something that a woman can sing. You know, whereas in the, unorth in the Orthodox tradition, a woman can't sing before a man. Now she is singing it before her husband, who is a spectator. And it's a way of suggesting that she's found a bridge between her Jewish you know, Orthodox past and her new kind of love of music in secular Berlin. So I agree, the symbolism is incredibly heavy handed, but I think that speaks to a bigger problem, which is that all of the Berlin sequences are fantasy. Mm. Feldman's memoir says very little about what she does after she escapes. These are all sequences that have been written based on her perspective now living in Berlin, working with uh, German filmmakers and German producers who are her friends. Um, and as a result, coming up with this I think one reviewer described the city as an archetype. You know, it's just the anti-Williamsburg. This isn't a real exploration of the German city. It's just used as a symbolic uh, launch pad for describing her freedom. Just to go back to the gender points that you were making there, or that we were making, how, I mean, how do you then think about the, the way masculinity, I mean, is portrayed? This, this, this program demands of us a lot of, potentially well-worn narratives and, and um, bon mot about, about poor repressed women, and she is a poor repressed woman finding their voice. But isn't it the case, Tom, that actually the men do not appear to be living in a bed of roses? And in fact, her husband, in a way, by the end, you feel worse for him. Um, so what, what, what do you, I mean, you're our resident man. What do you <laughs> think, what would you say about the way masculinity comes across um, in, in, uh, in this thing, and also I think masculinity serves as a bridge between the Satmar community in New York and Berlin, because obviously Esty ends up being pursued by her husband Yankee and his sinister criminal, um, formerly escapee but had returned to the fold um, cousin. So that so these these are sort of men who set out taking charge to reclaim her, get to Berlin, and that this whole thing it goes in different directions, um, and and, the, and suddenly what worked with the masculinity that perhaps worked in New York starts to look very, very different in Berlin. What do you think about that, Tom? I think it's a, it's, by the way, Zoe, I'm grateful for the chance to speak to masculinity for yeah. once. You know, it's a rare <laughs> privilege for me to speak for the male. Uh, 
I would say that this is really an image of fragile masculinity. I mean, one of your favorite terms, Zoe, but this is all about men who are unable either to live up to the rules of Orthodox Judaism, and that's where you get the cousin, Moshe, who is a very sinister kind of self-hating character who we see as a hypocrite, you know, is constantly sort of lapsing back to bits of secular life, leading a double life involved in gambling and in prostitution and so on. Um, so they're either dishonest or, as in Yankee's case, they are so burdened with the responsibility of being the ideal man and failing to live up to it um, that they're pretty broken and crushed characters. And I did think the actor who played Yankee was amazing for mm. capturing that kind of vulnerability. And I think when we said it in the first episode, we get her liberation where she chooses to remove her shaital in the Nazi lake, as you call yeah. it. Yeah. One of the most powerful scenes in the final episode is him cutting off his curls. You know, the man too is almost shaven at the end. You know, mm. he cuts off his curls, his payot, in order to plead with her to come back. So there's a story here about men being humiliated. Um, and equally, her own father, we also learn at one point, had been a drunk. Um, and it's about, in some ways, the lies the community tells to try and disguise these, the evidence of male weakness, um, mm. the way in which men lie to themselves about what's being asked of them, the way that the community makes excuses for men who are unable to live up to this kind of role. Um, her mother-in-law at one point tells Esty that when she goes to bed with her husband, she has to make him feel like a king. Uh, I don't know how this is. I don't know whether you're going to get similar advice from your mother at one point, Zoe. <laughs> but there is <laughs> of pandering to fragile male egos and the community making these excuses for these these sad, clueless men who are only a little bit more ignorant than the women that they're kind of otherwise exploiting and and mistreating. Oh yeah, no. I mean, I think that that the this it's interesting when when you get everything being about sexual reproduction. Um, so men have one the masculinity rests on this one capability. And when that, you know, but unfortunately that depends on an act which can be thrown by all manner of issues and anxiety and stuff. And, you know, you see, you see how complicated and horrible uh, sex can become when it's all about fulfilling God's kind of requirement to, to reproduce. Um, and then of course, what ends up happening, presumably as in a lot of religious minority, you know, in very highly religious groups is that the sort of sexual repressed sexual desire that isn't just about reproduction gets funneled into this more uh, sort of seedy, um, like pursuits that I think the, the cousin, I think it's hinted the cousin is interested in those. Um, you mentioned so, the point of religion, Zoe, could I just say a little bit about how far unorthodox manages to deal with religion or not, in the sense that the Judaism that we see is kind of all about externals. You know, it's all about the law. It's about this very strict sense of taboos and prohibitions and the right way to live certain customs. And obviously that's, that's an important part of Judaism as kind of practice. But this has very little insight into any of the kind of beliefs or the kind of spirituality uh, that these men might cultivate. They, when we see Yankee doing his prayers, these are all kind of very interesting ritual performances, but the show isn't very interested in their kind of inner lives. And it does at some point, to me, not manage to understand what drives um, the, these men and these women to embrace a life that is so radically strange by comparison with their New York neighbors. Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, so two points there. One is that, yes, uh, you know, th that kind of a portrayal where all you see are these kind of insanely, to us, insanely looking repetitive, um, sequestered, strange rituals. There is the potential problem that when you, when viewed like that, 
you are asking people to be anti-Semitic. I mean, how can you not look at that and think, ew, in its religious forms, Jews are absolutely vile. And I think the, the problem is that the, the complexity isn't, isn't easily rendered, but also even in the, that in itself is a philosophical point to make, which is that I think that the communities themselves don't do much um, philosophical investigation or deep dive um, into why they're doing all of this. The, the why is sort of left unspoken because it's so profound and it's so rooted in this absolutely nightmarish recent history. And instead, it's much more about keeping up with ritual. And so all the Torah study that they're doing is about if you've ever, I mean, if you listener have ever done much Torah study, you'll know that it's... Dear listener, in your last visit to the yeshiva, yeah, you'll remember. Your, your last sort of Talmudic investigation, you'll see that it is really about um, law, but laws that surround specific cases and practices. And there are so many cases and practices and rituals and actions that you're expected to do. That is where the, the law and that's where all the kind of time and energy is spent, not on the sort of why is this religion like this? How did they come to be like that? That is curiously submerged. And I agree that, the, you know, so it's not really the, it's not realistic that a, a TV drama would be able to show that. But I, I can see that there's a problem and it makes me concerned as a Jewish person, a secular Jewish person, that I think you're looking at that and you're thinking, okay, so is this drama actually, and dramas like this, and in fact, documentaries like this, like one of us, is this legitimizing just being like, ugh. It, it, I think it, in a way there is that problem. It, it's rest, resting on certain kind of Jewish stories um, that, that allow us to kind of be like, ew, them and us, ew, you know, gross Jews kind of thing. And I think, you know, that's, look, this is based on a, on a Jewish woman's um, story. She obviously has a profound and, and justified bone to pick with, with her, with the form of religion that she grew up in. But it's hard to imagine, Tom, I think, the equivalent kind of dramatization being done in relation to, for instance, a very religious Muslim sect or a sort of a Wahhabi community, say. And I think, you know, listen to the way people felt at liberty to talk about unorthodox. And actually, fair enough. I mean, why not? But for instance, the screenwriter Jesse Kornbluth, who I assume from his name is Jewish, wrote in the Huffington Post, there are claims in this book that Hasids have disputed I can't tell what's true, but I'm sure of one thing. Men who can't live equally with women aren't worth living with. No doubt girls all over Brooklyn are buying this book, hiding it under their mattresses, reading it after lights out, and contemplating, perhaps for the first time, their own escape. I mean, there are a lot of uh, religions where men can't live equally with women, not just religions, entire nations and cultures. And I, I think that some of those would not be, the likes of this, this Jesse Kornbluth would probably not be saying that about I don't know, Hindus in India, or as I say, Muslims. So th there's a sort of thing we have to consider. What is it about Jewishness that, uh, that allows that kind of disgust almost and condemnation? I mean, it's, it's very, this, this dramas like this are asking viewers to have that reaction. And it's not to say that they shouldn't. I mean, these communities are in many ways bad, but I don't think it's the whole story. And I think that programs like Stiesel are interesting about this Israeli community because they, they do show a much more nuanced, lively um, depiction of the, of the peccadilloes and the flexibilities and the, and the repressions and the openings and the closings of, of a very, very religious community. It's much more human rather than just this completely black and white, Williamsburg, evil, bad, depressing, literally even filmed in kind of darkness versus like 
the, the light of, of the secular. Uh, just final thing to say about that. And then Tom, I'd love to know why you think um, this is being set up with this kind of secular is best thing. I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. What, why have we got there? But I, just as a final note, I found myself thinking, would unorthodox have been so popular if SD, for instance, had moved to Tel Aviv instead of mm -hmm. Berlin? Um, this is a curiously de-Israelified kind of story and kind of narrative, as was The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I always tend to think that the world loves a vulnerable Jew and they love a story of this vulnerable woman who escapes one Jewish community and goes to freedom. What they don't like is, is a story that takes Jews into Israel. I mean, if Esty had instead fled to the IDF, got machine guns strapped to her and found herself as a parachutist or, a or an artillery commander, I highly doubt the world would be sort of cooing over how wonderful the moment is when she sh throws her shtetl in a lake and, and sort of finds herself. So I think, I think there is a bit of pandering to certain preconceptions of Jewishness. Um, but yes, Tom, sorry, I, I, do, I would love to know what you, what you make of this, of this strange way that we're being asked to sort of pant over secularism in, in this. What, what, what's that speaking to more widely in our culture today, right now? I can't speak to Esty joining the IDF, although it's a brilliant image. Um, what I would say <laughs> is that the whole story of a woman running away from a restricted community and finding liberation in the secular West is something that does have analogies. I agree that the amount of self-criticism or self-scrutiny that's going on in these uh, Jewish stories is quite exceptional. Um, but it's worth thinking about something like Infidel, um, you know, the memoir of Ayan Hersi Ali, that was a huge hit, but I guess people have been quite wary or been unwilling to turn that into a drama precisely because it would mean giving a very bleak depiction of Somali Muslim life. Um, in the same way, more recently, um, a book like Reading Lolita in Tehran, a huge kind of bestseller back in 2003 by Azan Afisi about women using literature as a way to defy the kind of restrictive patriarchal culture in which they live in and find their own kind of voice and to find their own kind of integrity. And it's interesting that Deborah Feldman talks about the role of fiction. You know, when she was uh, a teenager, it's in reading books like Little Women or Anne of Green Gables that she learned to be able to kind of speak back to um, the Orthodox community or at least to appreciate her difference from it. Um, and I suppose that's another slight loss with unorthodox is we don't get much of an insight into Esty's intellectual life. I mean, we learn a little bit about what music means to her. Um, but this world of literature, which is sort of how Feldman created herself, um, is never really kind of represented. But do you not think there's an interesting double standard where on one hand, it's very trendy to sort of bash the West and think critically about secularism as it's bound up with, say, capitalism and commercialism. But on the other hand, in programs like this, secularism and capitalism and commercialism are just look absolutely dreamy. I mean, you look at all the fun you can have when you buy flat whites and you get in cars and you go to nightclubs and you spend money on alcohol and, and it's all tied up with sex. Do you not think there's an interesting double standard there? I just think it's that languages of gender empowerment or an interest in feminism is much more sympathetic, ironically, to consumerism and the freedoms of uh, a kind of non-traditional Western society. Um, if the question wasn't about gender, if it was about a male hero, I think that the image of the West would perhaps be less alluring. You know, it would be a much more kind of complex space. Um, and to come back to this thing about Berlin is utopian, which you said right at the beginning, Zoe, and I think mm. it's true. One thing I really liked about the recent Netflix documentary, One of Us, was it made clear that that flight into the secular world, the secular world is not a paradise. 
um, for the for the Hasids and the Haredi who do decide to kind of embrace a new identity, it is extremely difficult finding your place in that wider society. One of the actors we see in the documentary, Luxor, is living in a caravan, you know, is unable to kind of have any rent. Um, another child abuse survivor is so lacking in basic education that he can't use the internet, uh, that he ends up in a rehab center, that these people on the other side are living quite fragile and um, very um, difficult lives. Um, whereas the unorthodox story is the moment that you leave the community, you will be embraced by a kind of gaggle of beautiful musical people uh, and live a <laughs> fantasy life in a new Berlin city. I, I, think mean, that, uh, I think that's what really pissed viewers like me off, which is like, I'm sorry, when do you get off a plane being quite weird and different and suddenly like the first people you meet are these gorgeous talented classical musicians one of whom the man suddenly decides you know you're quite attractive and takes you with him even though you're incredibly charmless weird and awkward that's just that's just like sorry that doesn't happen like she was pretty lucky in that case i agree with you what you're saying about the difficulty of the secular but just to just to note that i come down firmly on the side of the secular commercial world really is comparative paradise because at least there's possibility and and one of the characters and one of the real people in one of us he discovers wikipedia and he just says wikipedia is the most amazing gift from god ever now that there's wikipedia i can find find out something about everything and, and that captures the kind of incredible potential of being in the outside world versus being in one of these closed in communities one of the fascinating things, and unorthodox can only explore that to an extent, is how these hyper-traditional, you know, anti-internet, anti-modern religious forces nonetheless root themselves in the heart of the world's biggest, most kind of technologically advanced, most kind of sprawling city on earth. I mean, that paradox about how aspects of the hyper-modern and aspects of the anti-modern can kind of coexist in orthodoxy. You get glimpses of in the series, um, but it is a fascinating conundrum mm. from the modern world can only happen in a city like New York, and um, mm. that you can create these parallel infrastructures and you can create this kind of society within a society that's able to function both on and off the grid at the same time. Mm. Mm. So Zoe, why the hype with unorthodox? Well, <sighs> Okay, so I think, as I've been sort of hinting all along, people love a woman finding her voice story. Shira Haas, the main actress, is so very vulnerable looking. She's incredibly small. She's very good at suddenly looking miserable and her eyes tearing up. She's a very intense actress. So I think people were just captured by this kind of most unlikely of, of girls with everything against her striking out. So, so there was that. And I have to say, I, I think that alongside that or pushing that to, to make it such a success is just simple, slightly gopish, sordid fascination with these weird people and the effort they put into rendering it in a reliable way. And just hearing Yiddish was so weird. I found it weird. So I think there's just, just like fascination with this sort of um, kind of ghettoed culture, which it seems to be carte blanche to kind of be extremely rude and, and suspicious about, uh, maybe partially deserved. In fact, definitely partially deserved. I think it's a, a mixture of, of the gender narrative that appeals to people and the kind of sheer uh, exotic factor of it. And also the fact that it didn't show any kind of excessively strong or powerful Jew. That's, I'm sorry, but that's my, my, my uh, Zionist point here. If it had been taking place in Israel with a much more complicated military or geopolitical or national backdrop, I think people's enjoyment would have been immediately 
punctured, but this was a very easy depiction to get behind. It was just this vulnerability and then escape and woman finds her voice, clap, clap, in, in sort of nice, friendly Germany. Why the hype, in your opinion, Tom? I couldn't put it better, Zoe, but I would just stress this thing about exoticism. Uh, as someone who is not Jewish, this was such a beautiful rendering. You know, these amazing kind of fur hats, the costumes, the language, the ceremonies. You did feel you were allowing, being allowed to peep into a kind of forbidden world. It's almost like in an Islamic culture when you're allowed to peep into the kind of harem. It makes you a kind of voyeur of Judaism in a way. Um, and I can see why for New York audiences in particular, these are people who live in the midst of modern cities, but whom people have no access to and have no idea what goes on behind closed doors. And I think that sense that you are finally seeing some of that kind of hidden secret life um, was part of the kind of fascination that it delivered. Um, but apart from that, I agree with you. It's <laughs> all about the story of female um, <laughs> you know, self-realization. You know, it's Dolly Alderton it with is. a shaital. Oh, that story. Ne'er a truer word spoke, Tom. And that's all we have time for uh, this week. But join us next time for a discussion of Sally Rooney's Normal People book and phenomenally successful BBC TV adaptation.